Recently, I, Zettler Clay IV, had an opportunity to sit down with Reverend Brady Radford, and we talked about a number of things, but the conversation was centered around what he terms as spirituality as a practice of awareness. And along with diving into what exactly that means, we also talked about his dive into ministry, um, the prevailing attitudes of our community, our society at large, in regards to spirituality and mental illness and things that just affect us on a daily, minute level. And the conversation was so wide-ranging that we had to break this episode up into two, y'all. So I truly hope that you get as much out of this conversation listening to it as I did when I was engaging in it. So we're just going to drop you off right in the middle of the conversation. This is the Master's Voice with Zettler Clay IV and Reverend Brady Radford. So spirituality as a practice of awareness, being aware of God, being aware of our, being aware of ourselves, being aware of God's spirit guiding us to be in relationship with others. Awareness on three levels. Awareness of what God's doing, what we're doing, and how we're called to do in partnership with others. I'm thinking about the hymn, Blessed Assurance, that reminds us that this is my story and this is my song. When I think about my story, I'm thinking about how God's been active in my life over the course of time, not just the times in which I was aware of it, but the course of time period. That's far before I have eyes to see, far before I have ears to hear, far before I have any sense of connection or um awareness of the internally uh, dwelling presence of God's spirit within me, that many of the spiritual, psychosocial, emotional, psychological illnesses and discomforts and dysfunctions that we deal with, I believe, is is because we're not having regular spaces, regular opportunities that allow us to connect our stories with the greater story, to lift our voices, um, to find the the harmony, to find the the wavelength that connects us with God, that keeps us in connection even with ourselves, that gives us the courage to begin connecting in faithful, in earnest, and honest ways with others. Spirituality as a practice of awareness, as a practice of um, narrative shaping, being aware of the story that God's been writing throughout the course of my life history, being aware of how God closed off some chapters so that God might begin a new chapter. What's, um, what do you think prevents us from getting into these spaces so that we can grow our spiritual awareness, um, grow our spiritual practice and awareness. I think part of it is 
in keeping with this metaphor around the story, I think I think often we are invited and tempted to live other people's stories, to live in spaces where the narratives that other people have sh- have pre-drafted for us becomes um, authoritative in our lives. And I think that's even a challenge for the church because sometimes we, we've pre-drafted what should be the storyline for certain people in the church. We've, uh, we've pre-drafted that, you know, this kid came from a home with a... Uh, with the philandering father or a drunken mother. And so the narrative goes from there. Yeah. So are we conscious? Are we aware of how we are shaping the stories of those people in our midst and aware of how we're allowing our stories to be shaped by others? So I think that's what keeps us in, in, in places of discord in places of um, disharmony. If I'm not in tune with my story I'm usually trying to tune in to somebody else's. I'm right. trying to do somebody else's work when at the core, God's called me to do my work. Right, right. So what you speak about is um, self-alienation. And this type of stuff happens at an early age, too. You know what I mean? Like, you're not knowing that your story is, I was going to say just as valid, but in actuality, your story is the most valid because it's your, like, you. That's it's the only thing that you know that is true like you only can read about other people or you can only hear about other people's story through what they say but your story is something that you've experienced you know these are the things that you have to reconcile like so how do you if it starts at an early age like what's how do you break that you know how do you get to that point where we all get to the point where we say all right look my story is my story how do i connect my story with the the larger story in society I think we have to look at there's principle of nonviolent communication um, charted by a guy named Marshall Rosenberg. Okay. Um, and when I think about the principles of nonviolent communication, I think about the fact that you know the greatest proponent of the civil rights era, era, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was you know based around this notion of non violence as mm-hmm. a theological and sociological principle, principle I would say, I think we have to begin looking at narrative shaping as a form of violence when we are, mm. um, when we are unconsciously um, limiting someone's ability or even trans transforming our expectations of them you know um if we're unaware of, of of the ways in which we do this then we will continue to perpetuate these cycles that create a class of the haves and a class of the have-nots a class of those who are privileged and those who are underprivileged and i think that that dichotomy doesn't have to be like it, it it, for you to have what you need doesn't mean that I can't get what I need unless somebody's already convinced the both of us that there's not enough to go around. Right. Like, it's just it's innate inhumanity that is taught. That, you know, it's like, all right, well, you have to be denied 
so that this side can thrive. Um, you said something interesting. You said narrative shaping as a form of violence. So that would make it as in we are at war. Like strictly through, and that's, that's interesting because people don't think of violence in that sense. Violence is generally more overt. It's thought of as more like, you know, overt thing than, you know, like subtle of the mind. But that, what you talk about is, is like spiritual. It's, it's yeah, so let's let's just think about this. When, um, when I'm talking about narrative shaping as a form of violence, I'm saying that if, if I've predetermined for you, if I've predetermined your growth potential, your growth capacity, if I've already placed a ceiling above your head, I could still be kind to you on a daily basis. I could still smile in your face. I could still um, greet you at the door when you walk in because mm-hmm. I know where you're going. And so I already all the know. manners and courtesy. Yeah. I already know where you're not going because I've already placed a limitation above you. And if you are unconscious, if, if you're not curious about your own potential, um, I used to have this thing that I would say when I was talking to young, um, like as a college student, when I was talking to young men, I would say, if you don't know who you are, I can make you be who I want you to be. Mm-hmm. That if you, if, and I mean the same thing for even for us as adults, even if you are not clear about how God's developing your story, there'll always be somebody else who's willing to write that story for you. They'll take you to the end. They'll give you all the resources um, you need to play the story out in the way that they've predetermined. And I'm saying that that theologically and maybe even spiritually. That's a form of oppression and that's a form of violence because it keeps you, it limits you from being connected to the source which has every opportunity and every potential to do far greater than we could ask or imagine. I once worked at a church where there was a person in our nursery who had been there for 20 years. And I, and I wondered about what would have happened for her if she would have been in a different church, in a different kind of system, if she were of a different race. And after 20 years of doing a great job caring for kids, whether she would have a different set of resources to work with, maybe even her own child care mm-hmm. agency right. or right. training agency for 20 years now you've invested 20 years in doing this thing and there's no question about whether you do it well but if you operate in a system that has already seen this is your limitation the system's happy with you being limited here for the mm-hmm. next 25 30 years on top of the 20 that you've already served but if you are in a system where people uh, believe in the possibilities. They believe in what they're seeing in you, but they also believe in what's possible beyond what's already been delivered. And they've not placed a limitation on your story. They've not, they're still curious about what's possible for you, what's possible for them, and what's possible in terms of what God's doing. Then after 20 years of doing this, this you could be a trainer, you could be a business owner, right. you could be a... Right. Uh, an employer in the community giving resources to other people rather than just being in a place where you're getting a basic transactional out output from your watch kids, get paid, watch kids, get paid.
is it an imposed um, fear that? So I'm listening. I'm like, all right. So I so if I'm a person who I hear you, and I say, all right, Brady, I hear you, man. It's I, I probably have had an invisible ceiling over my head my whole life. How do I get to the point where my imagination can be stretched that I can, you know, get to that, you know, that land of proverbial milk and honey, so to speak? I don't know. There's a land of milk and honey. I, I think. Um, I think the the currency here is curiosity. Right. And I think that's the, and not just curiosity for curiosity's sake, but I mean even, even in terms of our spiritual disciplines. And when I'm talking about awareness, going back to this hymn, this is my story, this is my song. If I'm living and I'm still here, my story is not over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, an interesting fact of my life is that every time I've gone to a place and by the time I get comfortable, it's like that's when I know God's getting ready to do something where it's time to move. Right. Because it just hadn't been part of, of my storyline. That God's been like, oh, yep, I got you here. This is where I want you to stay forever and ever. Right. It's been like. So you view comfort as a sign that it's time to do something. I, I'm not saying I view that for everybody else. I'm just saying that that in Your my storyline, story that right. that's what I understand in my storyline, that, that on a consistent basis, at least three or four scenarios, I've seen it be the case to where when something gets to a place where it's comfortable for me, that's when. God begins ordering steps in a in a new endeavor in a new venture. But you know that because you have studied your story, you've studied your family, your your history, um, immediate history, so to speak. And you, so you're saying if everybody was to do that for themselves, they would decipher a pattern in which they can operate off of to get to, to continue to grow. Yeah. Um, so here we go. Um, I became I become curious about not just collecting the pieces of life as they happen, but figuring out how all these pieces go together. Mm. And so some of us are collectors of experiences that we have. Like, oh, I just went through that experience where my, um, my, I almost got evicted from a house or I almost got um, hit by 18-wheeler on, on the interstate. Mm-hmm. And I went through it yesterday, and by tomorrow it's already gone. I'm saying, no, I think that everything that happens to us, that all of those pieces and experiences are potentially meant to fit together in, in, in a way that gives meaning and order and understanding for our life at this moment, but also provides insight for what God may be doing in our right. future. So you're talking contemplation of things that's happened to you. Because it's crazy, because a lot of people I know go through things and, you know, Two people can go through the same thing. One one person can go through it and, and you know self analyze and introspect and say, you know what, this is what I think this is showing me. And the, the other person go through it and just roll, roll, roll off the back and yeah, just collect experiences but not really reflecting on it. Right. So there's a quote that says, and I don't know who's attributed attributed to it this moment, but the quote says, "We don't learn." from what we go through we learn from reflecting on what we go through right and so i agree with that you know i also think it's the difference between surviving and having the potential for a thriving existence that you know survival is about getting through this moment but thriving is having the opportunity to to leverage every moment that you've gone through with an awareness for how those previous moments prepare you set you up um 
become a springboard for the next moment. And I, and I think that's also part of what um, helps to create a thirst for life, you know, and, and, uh, and an excitement. If as a, as a therapist, oftentimes we ask people when they come to us, um, hey, when you look at this distress or this discomfort or this, this disruption in your life, this thing that you're facing, have you ever faced it before? Mm-hmm. And usually after living with that discomfort for six months, that's the first time the person realizes that, hey, I've been in this place before. And then we say to them, well, what did you do last time? And then in some cases, they don't know. But in other cases, people can begin to take us through all kinds together. of steps. Right. Yeah. And, and so the reality is that for those people who have a, an awareness to ask themselves, wait, have I been here before? Mm-hmm. And if I've been here before, is there information in regards to what I did last time that helps to prepare me for what I might do this time? So... What are, what's the cost of contemplation? Because, you know, I, I look at this and I say, you know what, I don't think people, you would think that people don't want to continue to go through things or, or, or go through things that they don't understand that are adverse for them. But obviously it's, it's, it's harder for some people <coughs> to, to contemplate these things. Because what you said earlier about getting into the space to practice uh, for the spiritual practice for awareness so, like, what will it take for a person to be um, on, on the road to reflection? Like, what would they have to give up? What would they have to embrace? What are the things that, you know, what, what's the food that they need to continue to go this path or to start on that path? I guess I would say um, when you get tired of living where you are, you'll find a new address. Hmm. You know, um, as you were saying that, I'm thinking about a person um, whose story came across my desk. And let's just say it this way. He was a um, a school teacher who's a bright mind, and he had a car accident that left him disabled. And so... Um, it wasn't full a full fully disabling situation, but it put him in a situation where he could draw a monthly income as a result of this accident that he had. He was twenty eight years old when he began drawing that income, and it's not enough money for him to live off, but if he were to seek a different form of employment, he might lose it. And so for the last 10 years, he's barely scraped by living on this income while he's also aware that he's a great teacher and has full potential and opportunity to be an online instructor with any of the online colleges like Phoenix and things of that nature. So... He lives off less than $10,000 a year mm-hmm. for the last 10 years. He could easily make $40,000 a year being an online professor with his credentials and his experience. So somebody could look at the situation and ask, in how many ways was he really disabled? 
not just physically, mm-hmm. but psychologically, psychologically. For sure. Right? For sure. Um, and for these last 10 years, if he's not uncomfortable scraping by on the way that he is, then I don't know what becomes the impetus outside of him being connected to people in the community who can help him begin to remember that his story and his song is not just this. His story has more notes and his range vocally uh, speaking, again, blending in the metaphor, that he has more range than just this one note. That his story has more chapters than just that page that was written 10 years ago. Right. And to become curious about the pages and the chapters that can come after this, even t- and 10 years later, is still a good time to start. To become curious about how his he still got range to expand his vocal cords and to expand the chapters in his storybook. Outside of there being the internal stimulation to do that, the internal discomfort that makes that a necessity, I think the only other way is by being affected by those people that we're in community with. So, yeah, so you speak on the nature and the role of faith community, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what we call church growing up. Um, do you feel in your experiences that the faith communities that you inhabit, um, that you share your space with, do an effective job of connecting um, those in the community with their story traditionally I I don't think so I think um, I think there's a dominant narrative in most of our faith communities um, that makes it such that we enter our faith communities with the assignment of having to keep it all together and make sure that we appear to be well appear to be well and for me that's like saying that a person with a broken leg has to sit up and walk straight into the hospital and it's madness right um and, and so analogy. I yeah like that. i think that um i don't think that we do such an effective job at this i think we can do a better job in making space for people to bring their brokenness to the table that we we while we might not be the source of their healing, we can bear witness to their healing as part of their community that stands with them, that prays with them, that fasts with them, that hopes with them for um, the next chapter. How important is it to bear witness to somebody who's going through? I mean, you know, you're being a therapist. I mean, because a lot of people downplay the notion of just kind of bearing witness. They feel like, ah, that's, that's not that important. They need to just figure it out and just kind of do better. But... How, talk about that. How important is bearing witness in, in the healing process? Uh, so I think bearing witness is, is a form of, um, is a gift because it involves both um, listening and seeing sometimes where places, in places where the person for whom we're bearing witness might not be able to see or hear for themselves. So we all operate with the blind spot. There's a um, a leadership and um, psychological tenant 
or a resource called Jahari Window. And the Jahari Window is kind of based on four pr principles. It's a quadrant. It says that there's this open area where we know certain things about ourselves and other people know these things about ourselves. There's this hidden area where we know these things about ourselves and we make sure nobody else knows these things about ourselves. Mm -hmm. There's this blind area where... There are things that other people know about us that we can't see in ourselves. Right. And so we all have a blind spot. And part of bearing witness is is part is is powerful because in places where there's enough trust, in places where there's enough community, I realize that what Zettler is saying to me could help inform me about my own blind spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, channeled with trust. And community, those those are prerequisites, I believe, for us being able to hear a person comment on our blind spot and give it some validity. But you that's said, the, you said trust, though. That, yeah, because you gotta have trust. Because you you know you yeah. gotta you gotta um you gotta believe that what they're saying to you can benefit you on some level. Um, what's the fourth area? You said the third area is the blind spot. It's the fourth area areas that um, I don't know about myself and they don't know either. So yeah, that's the opened area. Uh -huh. What you know about yourself and what's also known by others. There's the blind area. What you don't know about yourself but what others can clearly see. Right. There's a hidden area. This is what you know about yourself but you prefer for other people not to see. And then the, probably the most important part, especially as we talk about this um, spiritual practice of awareness is that there's this unknown area. There's this untapped potential. It's mm -hmm. what you can't see yet and what and other people can't see. see. Right. What I believe only God sees, and that's the importance of our being connected to the source. Mm -hmm. Because this is the place, I think the church has done a, um, a, a, that we've all struggled with across the board. And this goes back to something you and I talked talked about off, off script. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, and you will do greater things than what you've seen me do. Right. And I think for many of our congregations and for many of our persons in the unknown areas of our lives, there's plenty of untapped potential that involves our being able to create the right ethos, the right environment, the right space that gives us potential to do greater things than Jesus did. And that's unknown for all of us right now. But part of being able to tap into that unknown area, what we don't know about ourselves and what we don't know about others, is I think that can only be birthed in community. I think that's the gift of community. Is that as we begin to see each other, we get insight about our blind spots. As we begin to trust each other, we come out of hiding slowly but surely. And as we become fully present with each other, open unhidden and now seeing more because we're no longer blinded by our own um, our own idiosyncrasies that we can become fully present with each other in the full in the full presence of one another spirit shows up and that which is unknown to both of us becomes possible so a hermit a recluse um, they that, that there's a lack there. There will always be a lack in the life of, of a hermit and recluse, um, in the sense of not interacting with the community. I mean, can, can a person go about it on their own? 
That's, that's what I'm just want trying to get well, at. Well, I, I um, even if they're so, I'm definitely not going to downplay the hermits and the and the mystics because here's what I'll say: before they were hermits and mystics, they lived right. off of a stream. They were fed by a stream that was sourced from someone else, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that. When I begin to read the hermits and the mystics, I get fed from them. So we are in community. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, and 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 I think while for whatever season or for whatever reason um, that a person is led into that kind of ascetic lifestyle, um, they do so and we all benefit greatly from it, you know. Um and hopefully they go into that hermit um, type of reclusive living because they've been touched by the work of someone else, right? right. So it's still a form of community, although it's not uh, that kind of regular engagement that we would typically see in a in a weekly meeting right. of a faith community. Right, but it's, but it's, it's value there. It's, oh, yeah. There's definitely value there. I mean, when I read people like... Um, Um, when read people like even Howard Thurman, and he wasn't yeah, a recluse, a but creative encounter. Um, I mean, yeah. some of the uh, writings of Thurman, Henry Nowen, and um, and and all and several of the mystics, those things come by way of community, but they're usually heard best in silence. And in solitude, and so maybe there's something that we could all learn from them, and maybe it was this part of talking about becoming curious about our story is not about going to God saying, "Tell me, tell me, tell me," or or show me, but even getting into the presence of God and being silent mm-hmm. that we might hear God speak, and that we might um, see God reveal for us and to us. Um, new ways of holding our own story, interpreting our own story, and and also holding and interpreting the stories of others. Yeah, um, I, I heard somewhere, somebody said this, um, that um, history is anything that has ever happened. Um. I think I might be misquoted. Anything that has ever happened. So my history, so if I was to say, hey, Brady, what is your history? And then, you know, you might say, you know, my history is I, I'm the son of, you know, I'm the William, son of. I'm the son of William and Laura Radford. The grandson of. Jesse and Verdell Radford, and, Mack and, and, and Kelly Mae Spicer. And you may go, you know, up the tree or down the tree rather. Whereas um, I heard that history is anything that has happened to everybody because of since that, like your your ancestors and your descendants will be affected by the histories of other people. And like when you, what you said about sitting in silence um, and, and waiting for God, that made me think about that because you know the source is tapped into everybody. So if you're tapping into the source, then you're getting the remnants of everything. That has ever happened, um, but that 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 takes some serious trust, though, to to understand that because that's just a different way. That's not a way that we're taught to think. 
You know, that's more of an intuitive feel for life. Well, um, it, it takes a different sense of trust, and it takes our being willing to let go of the one thing which is already an illusion in the first place, and that thing is control.